0: Well, let me invite you to open uh, your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 22. And we'll be looking at verses 22 through 29 this morning in the book of Acts. And Luke has uh, described for us and recorded for us the message that Paul preached to this mob of Jewish people who had arrested him in the temple, had beaten him severely... But he had been rescued by the Roman commander and had an opportunity on the staircase leading up to the fortress to speak to his fellow Jewish uh, men and uh, many of the leaders. And he gave his message. We've looked at that. And as we come to uh, verse 21, we find that uh, Paul concludes that message by saying, go, recording Jesus' words to him in a vision in the temple, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is where we pick it up in our study. Uh, We're going to see what happens next. We're going to see the blessing of citizenship. And I think uh, the importance of citizenship within our own country. And try to draw some application from what we're going to see in Paul's life to what's going on in our day, and the threats that we have that are pretty similar to the threats that Paul had. So I'll begin reading in verse 22. And again, I'm reading from the inspired Word of God. So please listen with reverence and with faith in the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 22. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had put him in chains, and may God bless the reading of his word. Well, many of the uh, Jewish leaders hated Christ. they hated the gospel, and like the big big, bad wolf of the children's story, they wanted to huff and puff and blow that house hill shell, and they cast off their cloaks. They throw dirt up in the air just like a a mad bull pawing the ground just before he charges because they want at Paul. They want to kill him. They want to put him to death. And they provoke the Roman commander to have Paul scourged, but he's saved from it by his rights as a Roman citizen. He is protected by asserting his Roman citizenship, and the rights that every Roman has. Well, we're facing in our own country some upcoming elections in a couple of months. And there are some important lessons, I think, that we need to learn for our own religious freedoms are under attack as well. Paul's religious freedom was under attack. The Jews wanted to silence him. They wanted to kill him They wanted to get rid of him. The Roman commander, out of ignorance, wanted to scourge him and whip him. So his rights as a citizen were under attack. His freedom to preach the gospel was under attack. And I think in many ways, that is true of Christianity within America even today. So, I think as we work through the passage, I think there's some important lessons that we need to learn because there are things that are happening to the Apostle Paul that are parallel in some ways with what's going on today. Well, let's begin by looking at uh, the response of the Jews in verse 22 and 23. Obviously, they knew Paul, they were familiar with his gospel. They knew that He was making Jews and Gentiles basically equal because they're all saved exactly the same way. Gentiles do not have to first become Jews in order to be saved. No, they come by faith alone and Christ alone. Same way with the Jewish people. And the Jews didn't like that because that seemed to undercut uh, their status as, quote, God's chosen people. But now Gentiles can be saved without becoming a Jew. And they were threatened by that. They hated that message. And so they attacked the Apostle Paul. His liberty to preach that gospel, they wanted silence. And then we come to the commander in verse 24. Because after Paul addressed the Jewish mob, you remember what language he spoke to them in? It was in Hebrew or Aramaic. The uh, Roman commander probably didn't speak Aramaic. So he heard Paul. He's trying to get to the bottom of why are they beating up on this guy anyway? So Paul asked permission in Greek from the commander if he could address the mob. And he's thinking, sure, that'll help me understand what's going on. Then Paul begins to speak in a language that the commander doesn't understand. So he's kind of left out, probably a little bit irritated. So at the end of Paul's speech, when he says that God has sent me to the to the Gentiles, and the Jewish people suddenly just start erupting, you know, throwing off their cloaks, throwing dirt up in the air, the commander's saying, Whoa, what in the what in the world's going on here? We gotta get to the bottom of this. So in verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Now this uh, Roman scourging that uh, the commander wanted to subject Paul to would have been uh, flogging number 6 for the Apostle Paul at least. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24, he says, "...five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes." So he's already been flogged five times. This will be number six. But Roman floggings were far worse than Jewish floggings. The Jewish lashes, as I have read, were mainly from uh, strips of leather, calf-hide leather, and they could brutalize your back. But the Roman whip, there were different kinds, but the one they often used one they probably used on Jesus, no doubt. Had at the end, tied to the end of these leather thongs, were pieces of metal and bone and lead balls to make it heavy, to rip flesh, to tear out muscle tissue. And it was an extreme form of torture. And it could, if it didn't kill you, it could cripple you for life. The church historian Eusebius of Caesarea recounts with vivid, horrible detail a scene of scourging where the people saw this man being scourged and they saw him lacerated even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden parts of his body, both his bowels and his members, were exposed to view. This was brutal. This was... uh, Kind of worse than waterboarding. I mean, today they use waterboarding to get information from people. This is far worse. You're going to get over waterboarding faster than you're going to get over something like this. But the commander wants to find out the purpose for this flogging is to find out why there's so much commotion. Why are they shouting? Why are they wanting to put Paul to death? So in verse 25 they began to stretch out the Apostle Paul because that's usually what they did. They would strip the victim. and They would stretch him out and tie him normally to a post or stretch him out in some way to expose his back. And then they would just begin to lay on the whip. In verse 25, when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now in the book of Acts, Luke records three times when Paul asserts his Roman citizenship for protection, either of himself or for the church, in one form or another. Three times. And that tells me that when the Spirit of God leads Luke to record that three times, each time is important, and from each time, in reference, we are to learn from Paul's experience. So Paul confronted their illegal actions due to his citizenship. And this is not something he normally would lie about. You know, you could say, well, golly, they just, they, their attitude changed him pretty quick and he escaped scourging off, awfully easily. You know, maybe other people just lie about their citizenship. No, if you lied about it and were later exposed, then you would die. So you're not going to lie about being a Roman citizen. Hold in panic. I mean, he's been beaten so many times. I mean, part of his ministry is to suffer for the cause of Christ. I mean, he knows that. Uh, but he's not a masochist, and he's uh, seeking to use his citizenship to protect him here. And so he appeals to it. He informs the uh, centurion that he's a, he's a Roman, he's a Roman citizen. And part of the rights of being a Roman citizen is that it was illegal to torture you or whip you without a trial. It was illegal. And he is standing upon those rights as a Roman citizen to protect him from being flogged because that was illegal for that to take place. Paul on other occasions was resigned to suffering. But again, here he is asserting his citizenship rights to avoid a a crippling, horrendous torture. Now in verse uh, 27, the commander then, well, in verse 26, the centurion heard this and he went to the commander and told him saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? And you can translate saying, are you crazy? You're going to get me in all kinds of trouble by ordering me to whip a man who's a Roman citizen without a trial. And then in verse 27, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, well, I was actually born a citizen. In other words, Paul's citizenship was actually it actually trumped the commander's citizenship because Paul was born a citizen, and that's that's a higher grade. he that's that would put him on a on a bit of a higher level in terms of even his citizenship. Now, we know later on that this commander's name is Claudius Lysias. And the fact that his name is Claudius which was also the name of the emperor, the Roman emperor at that time, means he probably either bribed the emperor for his citizenship or uh, citizenship was being sold by Claudius to raise money for the Roman Empire. But he bought his citizenship with a large sum of cash. And then later probably took the name Claudius out of somewhat of a token honor to emperor claudius for giving him his citizenship or enabling him to buy it or allowing him to buy his citizenship but paul on the other hand had the more prestigious citizenship because he was born one this meant that his father was a roman citizen we don't know how his father became one but this actually made his citizenship a little bit uh a little bit more prestigious And then once the commander is convinced that Paul is a Roman citizen, what's the effect? Look at verse 29. Therefore, those who are about to examine him, i.e. whip him, immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So he realized that he was mistreating this Roman citizen because citizens in the Roman Empire have rights. And if you're in the army, if you're in the military, you do not abuse those rights or you will suffer the the penalty as well. So he not only immediately had him released, but he was fearful that he had put Paul in chains. So again, you see the blessing of citizenship. It not only enabled him to uh, have the chains released, but also to avoid this uh, torturous flogging. Now that kind of brings us uh, looking at this uh, general notion of how Paul used his citizenship and the rights of being a Roman citizen to his own advantage and to his own protection. I think there are some things we can glean from this for today. We can start by generally by just uh, reviewing the role of government. And I'm being overly simplistic here. But generally, one of the roles and functions of government, which is ordained by God, government is God-ordained institution, is to number one, establish and maintain justice and restrain evil. We find that in Romans 13. You find it throughout the Old Testament when God... Uh, established the uh, theocracy of Israel. Proverbs 14 says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And good government should protect righteousness and it should punish sinful behavior. A second role of government is to protect its citizens' life and property. Part of the role of government. Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Think of the people in Seattle and Portland and Chicago where all these incredible riots. People are mourning because there is no government functioning to protect people's lives and property. So the role of government is to establish, maintain justice, restrain evil, and also to protect its citizens, life and property. The role of government is not to provide financial security for everyone. That's what socialism says government should be doing today, to redistribute wealth based on their standards. Now, the Old Testament did say that uh, the landowners, the men of means in the Old Testament, if you owned the land, you were not to glean the corners of your field. So the poor could come in and do work and to glean what was left over and have sustenance, have some food. So God is certainly concerned to care for the poor. But socialism wants to redistribute all wealth and that's not one of the functions of of, uh, of government. In fact, when God set up government to be just, it must be equally just for everybody. That is the goal of God-ordained government. No favoritism, no partiality. Equality before the law. That's part of what good government should do. Remember in Leviticus 19, verse 15. The law of God says you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So, good government, everyone should be equal before the eyes of the law. Now when it comes to Our own situation today in America, uh, we recognize that there is a lot of injustice happening today, uh, particularly with all the racial tension going on in America. And we should all seek to support what is just and what is right. Christians, we should be concerned about uh, justice and fairness and equity within our society. All lives matter, and that is a good expression. Black lives matter, all lives matter, because all are created in the image of God. And all men are created equal, said Thomas Jefferson in our Declaration of Independence. Though so we all admit our founding fathers had some blind spots when it came to slavery. but The legal system today is something that isn't always just. Uh, the legal system really favors the rich in many ways. It's the rich who can afford the better attorneys. It's the rich who can endure a long lawsuit. Poor people can't. They oftentimes have to forfeit because they can't afford to uh, provide for themselves the protection or the counsel that uh, rich people. So there's, there's issues, you know, certainly within our justice system that uh, should be addressed and be reformed as well. Uh, You just think of some of the people in the news lately who have been sued or they have been uh, brought uh, charges against and they've gone bankrupt just trying to defend themselves in court. Well, not everybody can even do that. So obviously there are injustices today in, in just about every area of our society. And why is that? Because we're sinners. And we have sinners in government. We have sinners as citizens. And there's just an element of that. Uh, things aren't going to be perfect till we get to heaven. But part of the, the thing that we're saying with Paul's experience is there was injustices going on. And Paul understood what his rights were as a Roman citizen. And he also knew what the threats were against those rights. I mean, we just read about them. And I think part of the principle for us today is that it is appropriate for Christians to know their citizenship rights and to understand the threats against those rights and to use our citizenship rights for protection. I think that is something that Paul was doing here. Something that we can do as well. Well, what are, what are our citizenship rights? Well, just to make one... Again, the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the First Amendment goes on and talks about freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble peacefully, to petition our government for redress and grievances. All of that is a part of our Rights, First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. We're all familiar with this. But notice a government should not prohibit the free exercise of religion. That means the right of churches to come together to worship. So, what are some of the threats today against our Christian liberty? The freedom, the right to exercise our religion. What are some of the enemies that are threatening those rights today? Well, of course, in Paul's day, it was a Jewish mob wanting to execute him without a trial, even in their law system. He was rescued by the Romans and they put pressure on the Romans to go ahead and treat Paul severely and probably the uh, the uh, commander issued an order for Paul to be flogged partly because of the influence of the mob having influence on the Roman government to to mistreat the Apostle Paul, not knowing that he was a Roman citizen. So you have all these issues going on back then. Many of them are parallel with what's going on today. So what are some of those enemies at work today that are attacking the church and denying us or would like to deny us our religious freedom today? And the first one, of course, is COVID-19. All diseases, all illnesses are under the sovereignty of Almighty God. And so we recognize that God is in control of this, but I'm primarily interested in uh, looking at how John MacArthur and his church out in California has responded to the, the government in California wanting to shut down churches and prevent them from meeting. Um, and he used his citizenship rights to fight back. The church is doing that, in effect. Is he right? Is he wrong? Differences of opinion. I think he's he's absolutely right. That's my personal opinion. But it's not so much just the COVID issue, it's how the government is using that to erode and take away our right to be able to practice our religion. And so there's two issues going on here with the COVID thing. There's the public safety issue and the religious freedom rights issue. Now we can all appreciate the public safety issue because we know that this COVID issue has been a very deadly, it's a very serious, it's a very dangerous issue that's invaded our country. And most churches, certainly we did that and MacArthur's church did it, we just didn't meet for a period of time out of a, a respectful concern about the, uh, the spread of it, the deadliness of it. And I think that was all justified. But as time rolled on and more information started to come out, people started realizing it's not as deadly as what we originally thought it was. It's still deadly. Don't misunderstand me. It's still dangerous. But it's not as bad as what it originally we were being told by the news media. But that's why we still have... uh Able to uh, to watch services online for people that are still concerned. People that are in a higher risk group certainly need to still be very cautious and protect, protect themselves. That's still good. We still encourage it. We're thankful that we can still broadcast even our uh, service online for those that are not comfortable yet. And praise God that we can do that. But for those who are healthy and able and want to meet and gather for worship, the government should not prevent them from doing it. And MacArthur's point for his church is that the health scare is overrated in California. The death threat is overrated in California. And they've been meeting now for several months and to my knowledge... There has been no incident of COVID within his church, and yet the government wants to shut them down. The L.A. County ordered that indoor gatherings must be limited to 100 people or 25% of the building capacity, whichever is lower. So MacArthur's church is thousands. Well, there's no way they can meet at all given those guidelines. So he filed a lawsuit County filed a lawsuit back in return, and all that's going on right now. There is no uh, there, the superior, the California Superior Court judge has ruled that there is no court order prohibiting them from holding indoor services. But MacArthur's point was: look, the the health scare is overrated. And there also seems to be a bias going on in government that they want to shut down the churches, basically. But they're allowing strip clubs and massive protest rallies to gather without any restriction on them. And that's not fair. There's a bias there. In other words, his First Amendment rights are being violated. And I personally agree with him on that. So we'll see how all that plans out. But it's like Rahm Emanuel said, uh, that uh, you shouldn't let any any crisis be wasted. And I think this is part of the attitude that we're up against with the government that would love to see churches lose their influence, not be able to meet and worship for those who are healthy and able and want to come to meet to worship. And I think this is an area where we have every right to stand up and defend our right to uh, to worship. Because government is not to prohibit the free exercise of our worship services. And yet, they want to do that in California. So that's one of the things that I think we need to be aware of as Christians and just be sensitive to the government's overreach at times to deny us our rights as citizens of America. So that's something certainly that I think... Uh, has been in the news a lot lately. But there's a second movement that I think is out to uh, erode away our religious liberties today. And that's the Black Lives Matter organization. And again, several times, uh, we have already clearly made a distinction as a phrase, Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. But we're talking about the organization that's going on here. And I understand that there are people who would who can join those protest marches and not really understand what the organization stands for and is promoting. So what I'm looking at is the organization. And if this organization grows in influence within our own country, our religious liberty rights are going to be whittled away all the more. And we need to be aware of that. So... I recently read an article by Meek Addison, and she wrote a, uh, an article that said three reasons Black Lives Matter as an organization is incompatible with biblical Christianity. And this is what she said. Number one is letter A, is that Black Lives Matter seeks to dismantle the biblical definition of family. As an organization, this is what they want to do. They want to attack the biblical understanding of what is a family. They reject that marriage is one man married to one woman. That's a biblical standard. They reject it. And that biblical standard is also a picture of Christ in the church. It's something we believe. Something that we practice. Something that we preach. But they want to silence that. Secondly, Black Lives Matter as an organization champions the celebration of homosexuality. They rebel against God's created design for sexuality so that what God called those who defend a biblical understanding of sexuality. Letter C Black Lives Matter as an organization promotes gender confusion as normal. They're also very pro-trans, transvestite, transsexual, trans, you name it, they're for it. But there are only two genders, male and female. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. If this organization gets more influence and power, they're going to attack the biblical standard. They're going to Attack us and try to silence our voice in disagreeing with their view. Gender confusion is an attack of Satan on the Imago day of man's creation. God created man, God assigns genders, and you only got two to choose from, and you don't have a choice, right? But our society today is you got a choice. I mean, you can be a man today, you can be a woman tomorrow, you can be just in the neutral zone the next day. It's crazy. This is what this organization is promoting. And again, this is a threat to our religious liberty. Because in the next one, letter D, the organization calls for violence to accomplish its goals. And this is this is actually number four. Now, Meek Addison, who wrote the article, entitled it Three Reasons, this is actually a fourth reason in, in her article, The Violence to Accomplish Its Goals. So that's why the leadership of Black Lives Matter organization is really walking lock, stock, and barrel with Antifa. And that's why you see the two kind of merge together in what might start out as a peaceful protest a lot of times will be stirred up to become violent. Because they see that as part of the means of accomplishing their goals. So they want to tear down monuments of the Confederates, tear down monuments of American leaders, burn buildings, loot buildings, riot, shoot, beat people, attack the police. And for those of us who who want religious liberty to Practice our religion. And practicing our religion maybe we want to go out and preach on the streets like Juan and Eric and others within our church do. Well, there's a street preacher that went into a Black Lives Matter meeting in Seattle back in March and they beat the tar out of him and they choked him out till he was unconscious. You think our freedom to preach the Gospel is going to stand if these people getting in power and in control? It will not. They will silence us. They will choke us out just as much as anybody if they could legally. And they're working hard to to make that happen. Why all the riots? Why the violence? Why the destruction? Because they know that when people are afraid, listen to this, when people are afraid, they are much more willing to give up their liberty for protection if they can scare you with violence, then you will give up your liberty and freedom to look for government or somebody else to protect you. And that's why violence is such an effective measure with these groups. Because if they can scare you and and make us afraid and huddle inside of our homes, then they can manipulate us They can make us vote for whatever great big power of government will come in and rescue us. And this is a tactic of Marxism. And Black Lives Matter, you know, the the three black women that started the movement are lesbians and they're Marxists. And they don't hide that fact. But there's one more reason. This was not in Meek Addison's article. It's in another uh, interview that I heard And it was between Patrice Cullors, one of the founders, one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors, was confessing in an interview she had with Melina Abdullah, who's the head of the Black Lives Matter organization in L.A. They were carrying on a conversation. They were talking about their movement as a spiritual movement. Now, what does that mean? Spiritual movement. Oh, we're a spiritual movement. Black Lives Matter. Well, they went on to explain that what that means is whenever a black person gets killed, then their leaders will go to that site and they'll start talking to the dead so the dead can work through them to accomplish their justice mission. Now, Melina Abdullah, again the head of the L.A. chapter after a murder, said they will come into a community, speak the names of the dead, and invoke their names, and their spirits actually become present with us. That's what she said. And then Color said this spirituality is at the very center of Black Lives Matter. In other words, it is an occult movement. And if these people get in power, what do you think they'd want to do about your faith and your ability and freedom to exercise your religious conviction? That's why we read in Deuteronomy, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That is, kill your children if they do an abortion or even here when they're alive. Or one who uses divination or one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. That's what they're doing. They're trying to call up the dead. To whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So what it makes us mindful of is Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a demonic battle going on in America. And a lot of people are involved in it because they're tools of the enemy. But this is going on. And I agree with Meek Addison at the end of her article. She said Christians can and should stand up against injustice. We should. Absolutely. But we should absolutely refuse to stand behind a movement that vehemently opposes God and His righteous standards. There is absolutely no room for debate. So Christians that don't understand what Black Lives Or uh is all about, Black Lives Matter organization is all about, are dupes that are being used to promote a cause which will only tear down the church and deny us our religious freedom and liberty. Well, there's a third one, and it's called social justice. You say, Well, wait a second, that's such a good phrase. I mean, we're all for justice. And we all want justice in our society. We want social justice. I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, look at what the Scriptures say. Micah 6.8 He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the, the Lord require of you but to do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 61 verse 8 For I, the Lord, love justice... Justice is good. We should do justice. We should love justice. That's what our, our God wants us. But define for me what justice means. That's the kicker. Because this phrase, just like Black Lives Matter, the words in the phrase themselves are certainly true. Social justice in the, in the phrase, the words, is, is Good but not the way the meaning of it has been attributed in today's society. Who determines what is just? Now, that's the question. Is it God or is it society? If it's society, then stand back. nelly bar the door. Because crazy things can happen. So I looked up on just uh, the New Oxford American Dictionary Under social justice, this is how it defines it. Social justice is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. And individuality gives way to the struggle for social justice. I don't know if you understand what that's saying, but pure and simply, that is socialism. That is Communism, that is state control of all things going on in society. That is social justice today. And there are a lot of churches that are embracing this. I hope it's out of ignorance. But there's a lot of Christians that are buying into this social justice thing. But look at what it primarily means. A redistribution of wealth. So that now the state government has the right to go and take your wealth From you, which the Bible calls stealing, and they have the right to redistribute it for the sake of equality in their mind. Now we're all to have equality before the law, but life—you can't ever make everybody equal in all stages of life. But those who shuffle those out according to their, the state needs to take it from you and give it to those who justly deserve it according to their. Their standard, because you have oppressed the the have-nots, you are guilty for being rich or having money, and you are to blame. You are evil, and that's basically what Marxism is, which continually tries to stir up class warfare. And Marxism only thrives when people get all upset and angry because they are a victim. They've been oppressed. They've been treated unjustly. They've been abused and cheated. And all those other people need to pay me for for what they've done to me. That's Marxism. That's social justice today. And it's not biblical. There is no room for God in Marxism or communism. And this is what's being peddled here under social justice. You can say goodbye to our religious freedom and liberties. There's many different types of social justice. You have economic social justice, which ends up being theft. You have gender social justice, which is perversion. Gay rights social, social justice, which is an abomination. Reproductive rights social justice, that's the right to abortion. That's murder. Racial social justice, which in our society Really doesn't want to solve the problem, it just wants to keep dividing us and stirring up, uh, opposition to one another. So that now all whites are guilty of systemic racism. We're guilty of white fragility. We're racist and we don't even know we're racist. And we can't change ourselves either from being racist. And all this is doing is trying to stir up more of this class warfare which plays into the Marxist mindset to divide and give the government more power to redistribute wealth and opportunities and privilege. They are also rewriting history like the 1619 Project that wants to bring in racism into everything and totally overlook just uh, the progress that we've made in our country in some of these areas there are, there's a lot of room for more progress again there's still a lot of unjust things going on in our country but we're making progress by the grace of god part of the problem with this racial social justice is that within the church uh, and a lot of churches are embracing they're looking at people in groups like you know racial groups or you know, whether they're gays or homosexual, or whatever. But really, scripturally, we should always look at ourselves from our position in Christ. That's the most important thing. Not our race. Not our backgrounds. We're all one in Christ. And this is what we need to be emphasizing. Not the racial divisions and all these things within the church. Within the church, within the family of God, we are one. We're all brothers and sisters. And that's part of the answer, I think, to the racial, social justice issue. We need to proclaim that more widely and use it for proclaiming the Gospel. To call sinners into a a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Which alone can take out the hate of the human heart and fill us with love for one another. Love for all kinds of people. For everybody. That's what we should be about. But instead, they point the finger at also have white Christians just saying that we're guilty of all being racist and we need to repent. While white Christians, many of them have been in the forefront to end slavery and racism. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of our founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence blasted the wickedness of slavery in his age. William Wilberforce in England. I mean, just on and on and on. White people that have seen the evils and have tried to correct it. But they ignore all of that. Also, we need to remember that that good government and good laws are not to show favoritism. Everybody should be equal. That's what justice... That's what God defines as justice. So if you want social justice... Who's going to tell you what that justice looks like? Well, again, we find that we look to the Word of God. What about the the reparations that are so uh, finding their way in law of church? Well, we as white people you know our our ancestors were were slave owners, they were racist, so we need to pay reparations and yet Is that just? Is that justice today to demand that, uh, our generation, that you and I pay reparations to minorities because of what our, maybe our grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers were guilty of? Should we be guilty as well? Are we, are we on the, on the judgment bar and, and guilty with them? Well, God says that the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity. Nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. In other words, we're all responsible. If you have racism in your heart, then you need to repent of it. You need to confess it. It's sin. But I've never had a slave. And I'm not aware of anybody in my past. Maybe they did. I don't know. But to try to hold this generation accountable for what happened 150, 200, 300 years ago is not justice in God's eye. Now there is such a thing as generational curses and there's such a thing as as, uh, generational judgments from God. And all those are aspects that uh, certainly speak to injustice going on. But that's when the sons repeat and reflect the same evils as the parents. That's when those verses come into play. But if the son is not guilty of the same sin as the father, then it is wrong, it's not just, it is wrong to punish him for the father's sins. So these are things we certainly have to, to keep in mind. The systemic racism that we're being told exists today in America. The white fragility that white people are just too unwilling to admit to our own racism is problematic. They try to paint the American people with these broad brush strokes. Is there racism going on? No doubt. Are there people who need to repent of, of that in their heart? No doubt. But they, they failed to see the progress that we're making as a country. Uh, during the RNC last week, I, I listened to Senator Tim Scott, black senator from South Carolina who grew up poor in a single-parent household. And he later ran for Congress. And he defeated the son of Thurman who is an, an an establishment Democrat in a overwhelmingly white district here's a a man a black man from a poor upbringing single family home up against one of the one of the great leaders of the democratic party in an overwhelmingly white district and they overwhelmingly voted the black man into office into congress is that systemic racism does that sound like it's systemic racism to you and me I don't know. We elected a black president twice. Is that systemic racism? I mean, are we really that that far gone? That we were white fragility? We're just so raised we can't even see it? And then we don't admit it? And it's hard for us to admit it? And even if we admit it, it won't change anything? Is that really true? Another attorney general of Kentucky. Incredible speech. Black man. Daniel Cameron. Is Kentucky guilty of systemic racism? On Tuesday in Oklahoma County, we, uh, in the Republican runoff, we elected a black man Tommy Johnson who defeated a white incumbent, P.D. Taylor, in the Republican runoff for sheriff in Oklahoma County. And Tommy Johnson, who I voted for, won with over 60% of the vote. Is that systemic racism? Really? I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on with examples. Is there an issue with racism? Yeah, we still wrestle with it. People still struggle with it. But to attack us with some of the whitewashed labels that they give to us is uh, is inaccurate and it's really unfair. But if this social justice continues to move, it's eventually going to erode our religious freedoms because what they stand for is not what the Bible teaches. And they want to silence voices who oppose their values. Now why do I bring all this? I'll try to wrap it up. What should be our response to all this? Well, obviously, we need to pray. And notice how Paul tells us to pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 1 and 2, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and things made on behalf of all men, freedom to worship God without being molested or persecuted by the state. That's what this prayer request is all about. So that we can lead a tranquil, peaceful, quiet life in all godliness and dignity, not being fearful that the police are going to invade our worship service or invade our homes to drag us off or to try to silence us for standing up for Jesus Christ in the Gospel. So if we're to pray that, given our responsibilities as a citizen of America who have rights and the fact that our government is based upon citizens participating in our government, then we should also participate. We need to vote. We need to get involved. And God leads everybody individually in these things. I'm not trying to put out some kind of a pattern that everybody has to fit into. But as a citizen of America... And we are called by Jesus to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If I'm to render unto my Caesar what Caesar expects of me, then I need to vote. And I need to be informed of what the issue is. I need to know my rights as a citizen. I need to know what's threatening my rights as a citizen. And vote against that to protect our religious liberty so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So that no government will come in and infringe upon our rights to practice our religion. So we need to get involved. You can contribute money. You can participate in campaigns. Because by and large, if we we do not, as citizens of America, if we do not, promote our freedoms that we have now, we will lose those freedoms. As Francis Schaeffer said, he who will not use his freedom to preserve his freedom will lose his freedom. And neither his children nor his grandchildren will rise up to call him blessed. Why should we fight to protect our religious freedoms? So that we can have the freedom to preach the gospel. That's the greatest calling of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But like that street preacher in Seattle that got beat up because he's trying to preach the gospel to the mob. If we lose those religious freedoms then the church will have to go underground. And If that's God's will, so be it. But we would rather be free. We want those religious freedoms so we can preach the Gospel to a world in darkness who needs to repent and come to Jesus Christ who alone can save them. So that's the call. That's the example, I think, of the Apostle Paul. He stood up for his rights as a Roman citizen to protect himself. To protect his health so that he could continue to serve God. And I think in a similar application... From that, Christians in America should realize our rights and stand up for those rights lest we lose that freedom and lose those rights. And may God bless America because because we need it. So let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we uh, thank You for the opportunity to meditate upon these things and Lord, uh, just forgive me for anything that I have said that has been inaccurate or unnecessarily inflammatory. But Lord, these are things that uh, certainly burden my heart. But I thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul who definitely knew his rights and affirmed his rights for his own personal protection and blessing Because there are blessings to citizenship. So Father, we pray for the church today. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us love. Give us a longing for what is true justice as You define justice, not by how our warped culture wants to define it. And give us love for all people, all minorities. Give us a heart to love people And want to see them come into our family and to come to know the forgiveness of their sins and to be our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Lord, give us a heart and a love. And dear Father, protect and defend our freedoms. We don't idolize our freedoms, Lord. It's a blessing from You. But we would rather be free than be a slave. And we just pray that You'll preserve those freedoms. That the church might herald forth that precious Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank You that You have promised to build Your church. And though the gates of hell attack it, they will not prevail. For You have built Your house out of living stones. And You are the cornerstone. And this house will not fall. And we thank You and praise You for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.